Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Shout out to my friend, Dr. Melissa Peterson, author of Coach Longevity, learn from 20 plus of today's leading health experts, how to unlock your potential to look, feel, and live your life optimized to 120 and beyond. For having me speak at her longevity conference, this is my second time speaking there. First time I was on mindset and longevity. This time I talked about my transpartisan work and how we need to rethink how we organize politically, some of our institutions, and just how we show up in our lives on a daily basis to make this a better place for all of us to live. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated different somatic practices into his work, including rolfing. He is my rolfer. You can learn more about Cosper's work at www.cosperscafidi.com. Our guest today is Pilar Gerasimo. Pilar is an award-winning health journalist, pioneering social explorer, and author of the new book, The Healthy Deviant, A Rule Breaker's Guide to Being Healthy in an Unhealthy World. She is best known for her work as founding editor of Experience Life magazine, which today reaches more than 3 million people with each issue. That's awesome. Pilar also serves as top health editor for the Huffington Post, served as top health editor for the Huffington Post, and as visiting faculty for the Institute for Integrated Nutrition. Today, she co-hosts a top-rated podcast called The Living Experience Experiment and teaches online courses through her digital learning platform, the Healthy Deviant Academy. When she's not traveling, she hangs out with an organic, she hangs out on her organic community family farm in Wisconsin with her pit bull, who you can see in the back, Calvin. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I, He's I'm happy Calvin. to be here with you too. <laughs> yeah, he, he might say hello later. He sometimes will bark when people come and visit. So you might get a, you might awesome. get a few words from Calvin too. Nice to be so. with you. Yeah, it's I'm great so happy to, see to be you. here. Thank you for thanks for joining me on my podcast. My pleasure. Um, so, as I said, you have a, the book out, Healthy Deviant, and obviously we're going to jump into that and talk all about your book, which is not only a book, a physical book, but it's also available on Audible.com, and you also have your courses. But before we jump into that, one of the things I told you offline is one of the, one of the many things I've loved about your book is that your story is an exemplar of the unfolding nature of a healthy eating lifestyle. And you, you just listen to your story in your book, or if you read it or you listen to it, it, it's, um, it signifies both the troubles we are facing as a culture and the many institutions which kind of go against us in terms of our health and well-being, but also the possibilities that reside in us as individuals, as families and communities to do better for ourselves. So if you want to mind, could you just kind of start with your story, like mm. how you got to become a healthy deviant? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, in the book, I describe it as a healthy deviant hero's journey, referencing Joseph Campbell's, you know, kind of monomyth of the hero's journey. And I say in telling my own story that I'm telling my story, but also yours, meaning all of ours, because what I've observed is that most of us go through these different phases and like we come into the world reasonably healthy if we're lucky, and I did. I came into a healthy baby body and um, was a pretty healthy kid uh, for a while. And what happened to me, I think is 
what happens to a lot of people that when they start understanding that there's something expected of them as little humans, you know, we go to school and we're educated to behave in certain ways and we get the message as we're watching television and seeing media and watching the grown-ups and older kids around us about what we should do, how we should behave, what's expected of us, what's good or bad or, you know, what's us or other people. And what happened to me is that I grew up as a pretty healthy kid on a farm in the middle of Wisconsin, which I actually now live on again after having moved away for many, many years as an adult. But I was raised by pretty counterculture parents who had a very open mind and idea about, you know, we wanted to raise healthy kids. They were very open to us finding our own way. But when I went to school, I really wanted, like most of us do, to fit in and get along and be seen as normal and popular. And the more I began trying to comply with what passes for normal or did then in 1970 something, the less healthy and happy I got. And the more I tried as I got closer to my adulthood and adolescence in particular, um, you know, trying to achieve the right shaped body or the right appearance of beauty and being attractive. And the less able I was to really feel myself as an acceptable person. I just kept finding myself more and more wrong and then trying to fix what I perceived as my problems, my weight problem or my skin problem, uh, my appearance problem. I mean, right down to my personality problem. I had to be a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. And that was all dictated by the societal expectations and norms. Now, I will say I had some advantages in that my father was a sociologist. So from an early age, my father, while I was busy trying to comply, with normalcy, my father as a sociologist was pointing out to me, like, this is our society. This is what you're expected to do. So I had this kind of dual perspective of mm -hmm. understanding what I now know is about, you know, what I call deviance um, or departing from sociocultural norms, but also desperately wanting to comply with them. And what happened to me ultimately was as I grew up and went to college, started working, this set of problems that I had of feeling less and less healthy, less and less healthy and less and less happy got worse until I was overweight, depressed, inflamed, anxious, you know, not sure what I was doing with my life and kind of went into what I call this vicious cycle of the unhealthy default reality. We can talk about that, but my Definitely word for will. our society, basically, I got sucked in and sucked down like so many of us do. And these are the phases of the journey, the Healthy Deviant Heroes journey that I think many of us get stuck in of compliance, descent into this dark kind of hitting rock bottom place. And from that point, you know, you really only have two choices. You can diverge and begin going a different way, or you can die or just stay in that kind of death-like <laughs> trance of misery. When for me, what happened was I ultimately had this very, my rock bottom moment was kind of dramatic. I was having a very bad day in a series of bad days. And I got so frustrated with myself and what I perceived as my own inability to keep up and do all the things and be all the things and look all the right ways. I stomped my foot on the wooden floor of my home really, really hard and broke the bone in my foot. <laughs> and I talk about this in the book, but for me, it was like something about the combination of the sound and feeling of my bone breaking landed for me 
this very clear insight that I was breaking myself. I had been breaking myself. And if I continued to go the way I was going, I was going to break myself in more dramatic ways. And, you know, potentially, I think what a lot of people experience is that, you know, semi-suicidal, hopeless feeling of I can't be and do everything I should. I might as well just give up. Um, I'm very glad I didn't give up because it actually was for me the turning point that then helped me get into my own divergence and rebellion and healthy deviance, which are the other stages of the Healthy Deviant Heroes journey. And that, like I think you know, Michael, leads to this place where you want to be part of the solution. You want to help solve the problems that you experienced and make it better so that people don't have to tread that same path. And that's what I've been doing for most of my adult career is working on this, helping people master the art of being healthy, even in an unhealthy world, which is the world we're living in now. Unfortunately, it's very true, the unhealthy part of the world. So you started out counterculture and became a counter counterculture. <laughs> yes. And then you're like, this isn't working. <laughs> I'm going to become a counter counter counterculture person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's right. Awesome. And it's funny when you say it that way, it sounds like a series of very rapid reactions. And the truth is, I think that's kind of the nature of the reality we're living in now is that our society is changing so quickly and everything, the accelerating pace of change is putting all of us in a position where there really isn't a map for how to live well in our current society. We have to figure it out day by day. And each of us is living this strange truth that we are the first generation in the history of humanity to be living lives anything like the ones we're living. And I think about this, like my parents couldn't teach me how to live in the world that we're living in now. My mother is 79 and she's kind of trying to figure it out. But just like my niece and nephew who are in their 20s, they really can't come to me for advice on how to live their young person lives. And this was not always the case. You know, several generations ago, um, you know, our grandparents were living lives not terribly different from their grandparents and vice versa, you know, going back several generations. This is particularly true when you get back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, which represent the vast bulk of human history. Um, so we're, I think it's understandable we're having to figure it out and try it a lot of different ways. But yeah, culture, counterculture, counter-counterculture, <laughs> it's all up for grabs. Well, and one of the things that stands out among many in your book, uh, and you just literally just said it, is uh, it's experimental, experiential. Yeah. Like there's no like, oh, you have not created like, here's the model that everyone must do exactly this way. Like, no, this, let's experiment, let's play, let's be curious, let's try out new things. And I love it that you, you look backwards, like ancestrally, you know, the paleo-ish type of thing as, as a like a framework or a, a, a kind of way of seeing how we've evolved over time or what, what might be appropriate for us. But then you've also integrated kind of other models and maps into your work and you're playing with it. Like this, you know, I could imagine this 10 years from now would be different than this 20 years from now would be different as you continue. I'm not that you're going to rewrite the book 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Because <laughs> I know that you maybe I I'll do another edition. <laughs> yeah. Because I know you said it took about five years, I believe, to do this That's book. Right. So, which yeah. we can talk about. But, mm. you know, even with your name of your podcast, it's about ex experimenting, yeah. being experiential, trying new things out. Now, do you, does your kind of that approach to life, that curiosity, do you think it comes from your parents and the fact that they are countercultural? Or is it unique to you? That's a really great question, Mike. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with my parents encouraging that type of curiosity and openness from an early age. Um, 
in other words, I wasn't punished for trying things different ways. And I was a pretty conservative kid, honestly, I think because I was raised with parents that were like, hey, try anything you want. I didn't have the need to rebel in that way. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I lived a pretty well-ordered, a compliant life, like I said, for a long time. But I think what happened for me too is that when I became a health journalist, um, it kind of as the, at the outcome of all of this, like the way I was trying to do it wasn't working, the more I studied what worked and I got to understand the science of what worked, I couldn't avoid recognizing that it was not what I was being told by conventional health and fitness media. In other words, every new diet and exercise program that I was told was the thing that was going to make the difference wasn't the thing. And the vast majority of things that I was trying out that were working were less popular approaches. They were less popularized. I should say they were not um, advertised. They weren't necessarily attached to programs or products. And um, they weren't advertised in magazines or on television. So I started realizing that in order for me to have valid data about what worked and what didn't, I needed to experiment. I needed to come to things with an open mind and try them and say, well, I liked this part of this and not that other part. And also recognize increasingly that the science that I was reading about and studying was showing how much bio-individuality plays in to whether something works or doesn't work for you. So just because something works for me with my odd set of genetics and backgrounds and my single nucleotide polymorphisms, you know, all these genetic variations and the life, the, the kind of variations of my life, the variations of my life stage, my circumstances, my health conditions, there is no one program that is going to work for everybody. So I think encouraging experimentation as a way of pleasurably getting to know what works for your body, not just desperately trying every new thing that comes along, but really mm -hmm. greeting your own experience as a health seeker with genuine interest and self-compassion and noticing, um, you know, here's an example, like, the kind of swing that happens between, you know, vegan or carnivore or paleo or pegan or whatever it is. At different times, those different approaches might work really well or work well for a while and then stop working. Intermittent fasting might work great for a while and then start causing trouble. And so I think it's just good to encourage people to have an understanding of what the variables might be that would indicate you know, why something would work or not, but also just paying attention in real time to our own selves and the responses we're having, of this thing, feeling good. You know, that kind of what a lot of the philosophy in Healthy Deviant is about is, it has to feel good. You know, yes, there's an edge, there's gonna be a growing edge where there's some discomfort, but mm -hmm. most of your life can't be spent suffering the indignities of health seeking as it's presented by our dominant culture right now, or you'll just wear yourself right out and be unhappy and unhealthy anyway, <laughs> no matter how perfect your you supposed know, diet or workout yeah, is. And that comes really clear in your, in your book about pleasure. But you also point out like some things you might do to increase your health and wellness aren't necessarily pleasurable, mm -hmm. but good experiences for you anyways to have you know, as an embodied human being. You know, like yeah. for some, I guess for Wim Hof, cold, cold, cold showers and cold lakes are really fun. <laughs> for a lot of people, they're not, but still for some people, they want, might want to explore that yeah. as a way of changing states and improving health yeah. as an example. Yeah, that's actually a really good example. And it's funny you should mention that. I'm, I have a, 
a program that I do year round called Healthy Deviant U, the letter U, like university. And people move through different phases. Um, the first phase is about amplified awareness and starting where you are. The second phase is about reclaiming your mojo and building back up your lost vitality. And then the third phase is about raising your game and running experiments that are very um, curious to see what happens. And one of the experiments that I suggested people try around finding their edge was being in the shower and just moving the degree, the temperature of the water slightly to the left or right of where they're comfortable and noticing, you know, why is it you are happy and tolerable at this place? And then one degree different and you start having a reaction, you know, or when you're walking, there's a certain pace that's comfortable for you and walking a little bit slower is actually very challenging. Walking a little bit faster might also be, but I think we start to grow our tolerance. Um, and the goal for me isn't to get to the most extreme version of that or like, you know, being in an ice cold bath, if that makes me unhappy. It's just noticing what happens as you react to discomfort and deciding you, you can decide it's here or there. But if you don't ever give yourself the gift of moving even a little bit outside your current comfort zone, I think you start to ignore yourself and ignore your life. And I do think you miss out on available pleasures because you're convinced that you know exactly what you like already. And you stop having that curious, interested, open. And I think the exhilaration too that comes, I'm just fighting my earphones today. Um, the exhilaration that can come from novelty of doing something different or new, you know, or doing it in a new way. And so, uh, yeah, I counsel people to try various ways of experimenting, but temperature is a really good one because people do have very intense reactions <laughs> to being too hot or too cold. I think it triggers our survival reaction kind of yep. a um yeah very basic primal ah! <laughs> panic <laughs> yeah like some um, people being hungry is the same way any amount of hunger is too much yeah i love the fact that you encourage people to, to develop a really deep degree of self-awareness you know so all this stuff is not like oh here's another mental model it's all in my head i'm going to do all these things as a checklist yeah. no i mean you know there are amazing questions amazing things we can able to do as like oh i do want to check these things off and do them but it's part it seems to me that a lot of what you're attempting to have people do is the develop such deep awareness moment to moment that they can act from a really deeply authentic place um and not be so programmed by our culture the, the mass culture you call the unhealthy default reality which kind of denies us our inner self, our inner feelings, except for like shallow levels of immediate gratification, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Well said. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and I think mass culture, this is something my father taught me um, as a sociologist, you know, is that if you live in a mass culture, you're going to be encouraged to be asleep a lot of the time or numb yeah. a lot of the time. It just, it directs you into this place where you're kind of at the mercy of the culture. You respond very predictably to the triggers that are put in front of you. And I think sometimes, you know, it's like with most social norms, I start the book with the kind of the classic social norm of, I say, how are you? And you say, 
I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's no harm in that necessarily. Or, you know, if I wave, you wave back. That's a cultural norm. Um, the problem is that it's a slippery slope and pretty soon it's like, well, this is the food that's available. So that's the food I'm going to eat. Or these are the hours that my coworkers keep. So they're the hours I'll keep. Um, this is how, you know, our day-to-day -day patterns work until we suddenly don't really even know why we're doing things the way we're doing them. And I think that lack of awareness or that lack of attention on our own experience robs us of a lot of the sweetness of our life. And I, you know, I, whatever your spiritual beliefs are, I think of spirituality as being about connected to a sense of meaning or purpose that's somehow larger than you or encompasses more than your immediate, you know, sensory domain. Uh, and I think about the sense of connection that we can feel to other people, to our environments. You know, you and I are both dog lovers and the, you know, the pleasures that are available having a dog, for example, how much fun is having a dog if you don't pay any attention to the dog? You know, if the dog isn't actively in your life, why have a dog? Well, you could ask the same question about yourself. If all you're doing is being physically taking up space in your own life, but you're not aware of what's happening or taking pleasure in your daily life or interested in what's available to you, like, why are you here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, yeah. I, I, it seems to me like the, the mindset that you would you would find that people would benefit from is almost like a childlike mindset yeah. of deep curiosity, playfulness, awe for what's around us, what's inside of us. Uh, in your book, you talk about amplified awareness, and I, I kind of want to go through the three steps there. But you brought up, oh, buddy's moving around. <laughs> um, un the unhealthy default reality. And I just want to point out some statistics that you, you have in your book. 50% yeah. of adults have a diagnosed chronic illness. Almost 70% are overweight or obese. 70% are taking at least one RX, one medication. And 80% are mentally and emotionally not, not flourishing. And, and I would imagine that could be even higher now with COVID, yes. you know, the numbers. So the way we're living and the institutions and systems which we're embedded in that support the way we're living, obviously are not creating healthy, happy, thriving human beings. The unhealthy default reality. Talk to us a little about that kind of those systems and your critique of them and what you see as kind of replacement, more sustainable institutions and ways of being in the world that could support more thriving in our lives, more healthy living. Yeah. Well, so the statistics, first of all, that you mentioned, you're absolutely right that they have only gotten worse in the time since the book came out. The number went from 50% chronically ill to 60%, which is a pretty significant jump. And recently they've suggested that about 89% of U.S. adults are not mentally or emotionally flourishing. They're languishing is sort of the new word of the day, thanks to Adam Grant, who wrote a piece in the New York Times about that. Um, so I think the question that's worth asking is like, what kind of society creates that result? You know, in what type of society is it more normal to be unhealthy and unhappy and potentially dramatically so, like life-threateningly unhealthy in the case of our current culture? That's more normal than being a healthy, happy person. And I, I think the only kind of society that produces that set of results is in fact a sick society. I call it the unhealthy default reality because if you go along with what is presented as normal in our society, you will follow the, to follow the path of least resistance will take you the way most people are headed right now, which is unhealthy, unhappy, and not sustainable ways of living. 
And the question, how do you fix that? I think it begins, as you referenced, with amplified awareness, which is for me just a term that means being more awake than most other people are most of the time, which isn't a very oh. high bar, frankly, because we're all nope. so distracted and <laughs> overwhelmed and depleted. And when you're languishing, how much attention can you have on much? You know, you're just in a place of suffering or numbness or you're self-anesthetizing through media or drugs and alcohol or gambling and sex or whatever can, you know, blunt the feeling. Even sometimes so-called healthy behaviors like endless amounts of yoga or, you know, a lot of CBD and, you know, chamomile tea. At some point you're like, why are we having to self-soothe this much with fidget spinners and gravity blankets? So I think the awareness piece is about noticing how you're actually feeling most of the time. And one thing I suggest people do is to notice most people when they wake up, they either still feel fatigued and like they wish they had slept longer. That's a good thing to notice first thing in the morning. Do I not really feel ready to get up and greet the day? Or they wake up in a kind of hyper vigilant alert panic about everything that needs to happen. And they start immediately, they jump into action and they start go, 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 go. And then they notice, if you pay attention, the feeling of cortisol and adrenaline running through your system and what you're fearing and worrying about and what needs to get done and you're rushing. That's another good thing to notice. Some people, probably the less large quantity of people, wake up feeling pretty good in the morning. And for a while, they're doing okay. But there's a point, usually an hour and a half to two hours after they get into the main production part of their day, where they start feeling less good. They start feeling fatigued or stressed or distracted or brain fogged, or they start having unhealthy cravings for things like carbohydrates or more caffeine or a cigarette. And what I encourage people to do with amplified awareness is notice, just notice that. Notice what happens when you first wake up, how do you feel? Notice what happens an hour and a half to two hours later. And notice when do you lose the ability to be aware? Because for almost all of us, there is a time, and I could tell you for myself, it's about 10.30 or 11, where I first start to lose consciousness because I'm sucked into the affairs of the day. I'm sucked into what other people want from me. I'm sucked into my computer or my phone or the agenda. And I have to make a break in my day very consciously to return myself to consciousness. And, you know, I've experimented with this to see what practices and many of them are the ones I write about because they're effective. What practices are required for me to remain conscious, to maintain my awareness further and further into the day? It's almost a game for me to play with myself. How long can I stay aware before I lose it to the unhealthy default reality and have to uh, really consciously bring myself back in? Are these your Altrian um, rhythm breaks that you yeah. write about? And you also yeah. recently had an article come out um, two weeks ago, I believe it was, about some of this stuff as well. Yes, Altridian rhythm breaks are one of the three renegade rituals, I call them, that go along with the nonconformist competencies we're talking about now. Amplified awareness is one of those nonconformist mm -hmm. competencies. But what I find is that, you know, the competencies are sort of big picture things you have to get good at. So one is amplified awareness. The second one is preemptive repair. That's getting ahead of the damage that's done to us just by virtue of living in the unhealthy default reality, our pro-inflammatory society. And then the third nonconformist competency is continuous growth and learning. And that's just accepting that 
you have to have beginner's mind and be constantly learning and building new skill sets because A, there's a lot to learn to try to be a healthy person in an unhealthy world. But it's also the circumstances are always changing. Um, so I find what's helpful is giving people daily practices that help them build those competencies. And that's what the renegade rituals are. So there's a morning minutes practice, which is about waking up gradually and thoughtfully and not allowing yourself to be sucked in to the unhealthy default reality. First thing on waking, when you're the most vulnerable and impressionable, then ultradian rhythm breaks, which are supported by a lot of military science. Um, and they're very scientifically proven, just like you have heart rate and eye blinking rhythms and brain rhythms, sinus rhythms. You have rhythms of energy that fluctuate throughout the day, every 90 to 120 minutes. And ultradian rhythms are those rhythms. And ultradian rhythm breaks are getting into agreement that there's a low point that occurs every hour and a half to two hours where your body is trying to get you to take a break. And if you take the break, wonderful things happen. <laughs> You're returning your energy and enthusiasm and clarity, improving your metabolism and immunity and more. But if you don't take those breaks, most people don't because they aren't considered normal. They're not prescribed by our society. In fact, we're very much programmed to ignore them. Mm -hmm. If you don't take them, what happens is that you begin a precipitous downward spiral slide and you get diminishing returns throughout the day until by the mid-afternoon or late afternoon, you're kind of a wreck and you're inflamed and exhausted and reactive and incapable of thinking straight and you're very easily tempted. So building those breaks into um, our days is one of the best ways I know of helping people practice preemptive repair, getting ahead of the damage before you become too vulnerable to really advocate for yourself. Um, and yeah, and that and, leads then to the final part examples. of the day of winding down. Uh, examples of ultradian rhythm breaks? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, so if you think about the fact that during the time that you're being productive, you're focused, you're working hard, you're trying to get some stuff done, you may be experiencing a certain amount of stress, your body is building up all these byproducts of metabolic waste and cellular debris and neurosynaptic little snippets or packets of information that aren't really well organized yet in your mental inbox. When all of that stuff begins accumulating, it's effectively like pollution in your system. It's a set of imbalances and unprocessed gunk. And the break is really what you need to do to give your body and mind some downtime and effectively space and time to process that stuff. So any shift of gears from being highly focused and productive into doing something less strenuous or less demanding could qualify as an ultradian rhythm break. In an ideal world, the more you can shut down all of the active systems, for example, by lying down or closing your eyes, effectively trying to go to sleep or take a nap or do deep breathing or rest. Um, military science suggests the more you can go into a prone, completely non-productive state, the more effective your body mind will be in replenishing those imbalanced chemicals and repairing damaged tissue and returning your body to a fully functional state. Uh, so that's basically what they would suggest. The more you can go down, the faster and better you'll come up. But any break is better than none. And so, you know, moderate to mild activity is fine. Like taking a walk outside is famously popular. Maybe getting a, some actual nourishment and hydration into your system. If you know you're running low on blood sugar and dehydrated, great to get some water and some food. But 
What doesn't work so well, unfortunately, is what most people do, which is go for caffeine and sugar or some other chemical stimulant like an energy drink. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Um, or they get sucked into their devices and they think, I can't focus anymore. I'm just going to go into this. But that is really the worst thing you can do because your brain is still trying to process all that stuff and you're still getting all this like confusing information that is overwhelming your body mind at a time it most wants to go into fallow receptive mode. One thing that's really can be motivating for people who maybe are a little unsure that they're like, sure, this is going to help me be more productive. Think about where you get all your best ideas. And most people will say, well, it's when I'm walking my dog or I'm in the shower or sometimes on the toilet. Like literally people do not have any time in their day except to take care wow. of their most basic functions. But it's when we power down that we get all of the best ideas because that's when this default mode network goes into high gear. And it looks like we're not doing anything productive. But in fact, that's when our systems are going into their most productive mode. Um, and that's where you get all the benefits later. When you come back from the break and you're back to being full energy and full attention, you operate at such a higher level that um, increasingly, you know, executive, high-functioning executive groups are teaching these skills. Certainly the military continues to study and teach them. Um, it's unfortunate that they've been programmed out of our culture. They used to be part of our culture uh, at various times in history, and we kind of lost them in a search for ever higher levels of productivity. Um, one of the areas I spend a good amount of time studying and working in is, is in, the, in your unhealthy default reality is education yeah. and look, kind of looking at the authoritarian models that we have that run majority of our education systems since the late 1800s here in the United States. Um, and, you know, there's no, there's no playfulness. There's no curiosity. There's no awe. It's all kind of taken out of the children so they can learn rote stuff. Yeah. That's not the purpose of this conversation. I bring that up because it'd be interesting if there's any schools out there and they don't have to necessarily be the public schools or even private schools it could be some of these you know kind of um, um uh, alternative cooperative ventures that are not really school schools but i'm curious are, is anyone taking some of these things and implementing it in like primary education secondary education that you're familiar yeah. with yeah well i know that there has been i've been contacted by a number of different groups. You know, the New York City public school system, for example, oh, one of their good. leaders was at a talk I gave and was really interested in this. Um, and a lot of individual teachers and guidance counselors and administrators have said, wow, this makes so much sense based on how we know children learn. Mm -hmm. And there are systems like Waldorf and Montessori schools in particular that very consciously have built in what they kind of think of as like breathing rhythms, in-breath and out-breath activities where you're more active versus in recovery. Um, and I do think some of the most well-regarded schools have built in these structures, whether they call them ultradian rhythm breaks or not, uh, have found that kids tend to do better when they have time to integrate the lessons from the you know, highly focused period by doing something that's kind of a power off. So when I was in school, I think that this is how we were learning. We had history class and then we had music and we had the, you know, math and then we had recess and then we had, you know, reading and writing and we had lunch. <laughs> and, and it really did follow this kind of undulating rhythm. Hmm. 
now, again, as you've noted, I think so many schools have been, it's been legislated for them that in order to help kids get better results, we need to be cramming more information into their heads all the time and asking them to stay in their seats and to, you know, focus on the blackboard or, you know, get, again, now they have these devices. And I think what we're seeing, it's, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing behavior and mood disorders and high rates of depression and anxiety and a lot of medication being administered to kids so that they can succeed in sitting for long periods of time while focusing on one thing, which isn't really how any human system was designed. So my hope is that as I'm talking more to the folks who have influence into those systems, um, some of this research and this, uh, these sets of observations will find happy homes. But I've also been contacted by a lot of parents who have been, and if they've learned more about healthy deviance and are embracing it themselves, really frustrated with what they observe as the kind of built-in structures in their children's schools. And some examples that have come up recently in conversations I've had, um, have to do things like my you know kid has to raise their hand to go to the bathroom and often they're asked if it's an emergency before they are allowed to go and i'm so i'm in these executive groups encouraging adults notice when you have to go to the bathroom and rather than waiting you know or telling yourself i'll do it when it's a better time heed your first call respect mm -hmm. your body and begin training your amplified awareness to notice that and go and then they're like, well, I'm doing this now, but my poor kid is having to deal with this at school. And the teachers are also frustrated because they're like, listen, if I don't do that, then I have, you know, a whole bunch of other problems of kids that are truant or out in the hallway smoking or making mischief and my administrators are not happy. So back to the whole systems thinking. It isn't like there's one easy fix, like, oh, ultradian rhythm breaks for everybody. We need to be creating, I think, a whole bunch of systems that are acknowledging that these are not human frailties that we can't focus 24 hours a day and productive. This is human genius. I mean, this is like everything else in nature. The, if you want to think of it as design or programming or patterning, it works better when you get into agreement. And this, I will just say, this is a slight divergence, but I often refer to Altradian Rhythm Breaks as the ultimate biohack, because to me, they are the thing that is the most accessible, the most powerful, the most proven. Uh, most people don't know that they can do this and experience a much greater impact than they would from, say, something like a bulletproof coffee, which costs money and just, you know, it's a whole different thing. But the biohack isn't really a hack at all. It's not busting into a system. It's getting into agreement with the system. Yeah, yeah. It just works a lot better. Like sleeping at night and getting up in the morning works better for most people because it's programmed into our system and people who do shift work know how it costs you to try to reverse those that pattern we, we call them the spot drills it's a way to break up the day and, and get the body energetics moving differently than what you're doing previous to that yeah it's awesome um with the amplified awareness in, in the spirit of timothy leary you have tune out and tap in can you speak to that one yeah well, it's interesting you should mention that because, of course, Timothy Leary brings up the, the idea of like psychedelics and acid, which is not what my book is about, not the type of healthy deviance necessarily <laughs> I'm talking about. But I do think that altered states are one way that we train ourselves to pay attention. In other words, when one of the things that humans like to do 
is alter their states. And mm -hmm. kids do it by spinning around, you know, and getting dizzy or hanging upside down from jungle gyms or holding their breath and seeing what happens, or rubbing a balloon on their head and seeing their hair stick up. It's novel and interesting. And when you're paying attention to yourself, life is kind of cool and fun. Altering our states, whether we are doing it by getting high, you know, on life or running or psychedelics, is one way of a kind of, I think, retraining our attention to notice the magic that's available in our lives. And amplified awareness, the tuning in and dropping out part, I think, beyond the psychedelic reference, was about, yeah, tuning into who you really are, how you really feel, the full breadth and depth of your experiences as a sensory, feeling human being and dropping out, not necessarily of all of life, but dropping out of what is making you feel dead, you know, dropping mm -hmm. out of the unconscious decisions that our society, the unhealthy default reality has foisted upon you. So again, you know, when I call it the unhealthy default reality, what I mean is that if you go along with the default, easy, automatic, encouraged choices, the ones that don't require very much amplified awareness, they lead to one predictable direction. <laughs> and it's the society that we have created now, unfortunately, is both a result of a whole bunch of us being in an unconscious, unaware state and just kind of going for broke, basically, like crazy systems that make no sense. Like our, our conventional healthcare system is a good example. Our economic system is kind of another one. But to, to fix those problems is going to require some tuning in and dropping out. It's going to require some people backing away from those defaults long enough to question them. Is this working for me and my partner and my family and my dog and my company? You know, is this working for my community? And, you know, we, we were just before we got, uh, came on the podcast, Michael, you and I were talking a little bit about um, being involved in civic life, you know, being on a town board or volunteering or being involved in um, committees and things. It's very difficult to have the energy and enthusiasm available to do that kind of stuff if you are not feeling very well or you don't have a surplus of energy and enthusiasm. So tuning in and dropping out, it may be an important step or a periodic thing to do, like amplified awareness, I'm tired, I'm bored, I feel weird, I'm afraid, a lot of us are feeling afraid, <laughs> then taking the action of pulling yourself out of the situation that's been making you feel that way to recover your mojo, as I say, reclaim your mojo, can allow you to return with a different kind of set of, a different set of perceptions. And you can see choices that are available to you now that you could not see before. And I think that's what excites me is the possibility of creating a better way of living on this planet together in communities and families and cities and city states that isn't so reactive and unconscious and such a default mode all the time. You talk about and under amplified awareness as part of the, like, in order to be able to tune out and, and be more aware, you have to slow down. Yes. And you have some practices like scheduling nothing time, non-rushing breath work, mindfulness meditation, yoga, conscious eating, conscious community, I guess being in therapy and coaching. So you, you offer people who read your book, like it's not just theoretical, here are some things you can start doing that allows you to slow down enough so then you can start seeing the unhealthy default reality that's its effects on you and making better decisions for yourself and your family. Yes. Which is, which is really good. You know, back to your book. <laughs>
Um, Thank you. So your book is available on physical, on Kindle, on audio, mm-hmm. audible.com. But you also offer courses. Can you speak a little bit about your courses and why my listening audience should sign up for your courses? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Well, one thing that I, it was interesting, um, I'm kind of notoriously bad at self-marketing. And most of the things that I create happen because people come to me and ask for them. And then I have to figure out how to make it work. Um, uh-huh. During the last year with COVID, you know, so many people wanted to get healthier and happier. And when my book came out in January, of course, it was right before the pandemic shutdown. But a lot of people were like, listen, I want to I want to take charge of my health and particularly during this time, I want to come out of this healthier and happier than I went into it. So it's, I started with like a five day challenge, which I'm now doing, you know, at least once a year. And then in the book, there's a 14 day healthy deviant adventure program. And a lot of folks were asking like, how could I do that with a group of people? Or how could I do that? Could you do it with us, you know, take us through the program. I'm like, this is great. So during the first 14 days of lockdown, I just ran this then free completely, like, just come on, we'll do it together for 14 days every day. It was really intense and wonderful. And it made such a difference for people that a lot of them wanted to keep going. So then I created some other programs, including Healthy Deviant You. And I have another program. Uh, so Healthy Deviant You is this four-phase program that goes year-round that helps you walk through starting where you are, reclaiming your mojo, raising your game, and then being the change. And the fourth phase, fourth phase is kind of what we've been talking about of how to build this into your whole way of being in the world and being with, bringing along other people, you know, being in community with people so that you have a more of a built-in support network for this. Um, so that's really fun. That launches in the fall again, but between now and then I'm doing another course. It's a six week course called refine your life or change it completely. And, um, it's, it's a really interesting process that takes people through what I think of as kind of the 101 of personal development and change. It came out of my own experience before I wrote The Healthy Deviant and before I started Experience Life magazine. In my early 30s, I just was kind of hitting my own rock bottom, I guess. And I was like, I need to change my life. But every time I would go to change my life, I would fail at it and I would end up right back where I was and it was just frustrating. So I decided I was going to get good at change and I studied all this stuff and went to coaching and therapy and, you know, a thousand programs later, I was like, I'm starting to see some patterns here. You kind of got to know what matters to you. You have to have values, vision, goals, action planning, and some sense of how to track your progress and success. So refine your life is the thing that I'm um, just launching, getting ready to launch now now. And uh, I've taken hundreds of people through that. For me, it's kind of the preamble to healthy deviance, which is you can certainly jump in as a healthy deviant in the making. Anybody can be a healthy deviant. Um, You don't have to be a certain level of health or fitness to pull it off. It's just a matter of deciding what your health means to you and going with it. But for a lot of people, I think these first steps of really reflecting on what matters to them and what they're feeling called to live in their life. What's the bigger picture? Again, health fits in to this larger set of priorities that we have. And I think understanding that is one way of getting past the six pack abs, bikini body obsessions that we've become, we've 
been taught to associate with health and fitness and really getting like, why does my health even matter to me? What kind of life do I want to live? Where does my health improvement fit into this bigger picture? So that's another part of what I'm really interested in doing is bringing people into this way of living who don't necessarily consider themselves healthy deviants or even feel attracted to that yet, but start to understand that if they want to live lives of meaning and purpose and satisfaction, they're probably going to have to deviate from the way most people are living because frankly, we know where statistically that set of choices takes you. So yeah, thank you for asking. It was a very generous question. And for folks who are interested, I'll say too, a lot of what I do, I, I like to give away for free and I really want this to be accessible to everybody. So people who are interested in learning more about it can, um, there's a free preview of my book that's available at my website, which is healthydeviant.com. There's a free quiz you can take. There are um, free Facebook group you can join that has like the five day challenge is actually in the guide section there. So if you want a taste of any of that, uh, and if there's anybody who, you know, just is interested in learning more, the website gives a lot, as does the podcast, has a ton of information in it and that's free as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, The Emerging Human, and having a conversation about your most excellent book, The Healthy Deviant. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me, Michael. I love your Healthy Deviant shirt. I love your Healthy Deviant philosophy. (laughs) And I will say it's so fun to connect with other people who get this right away. You know, I always know when I've like met a fellow healthy deviant because they're like, I've been saying this for decades. You're just describing my experience. I'm like, yep, that's what I wanted to do. (laughs) It's not invent something, but tell people, I think, uh, connect people through a shared experience. So thank you for connecting with me. You're welcome. I've enjoyed this. Thank you. Yes.